All right, praise God. I'm going to begin with a scripture out of Isaiah 55 uh, in verse 7. The Bible says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's a strange verse to begin with, and I'll come back to it here in a few minutes. Of course, the word return means to turn back or to come back to God. And so we know that in our nation, uh, we have a need that our nation return to God, that she return to him. We, you know, Carmen died uh, a week or so ago, and he had this song that said, uh, God in America. And we need God in America again. And that's what he said throughout the song. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And so we've actually looked at that passage in the last year, and, and we talked about that Jesus is talking to this church in Laodicea. They become lukewarm. They're unaware of their impoverished spiritual condition. They don't even know what's going on. They think everything is good. They got lots of money. They have a good Things seem to be going good in the church. I mean, they have the latest of everything because they got lots of money, and they basically say we have need of nothing. But what they don't know is that Jesus isn't going to church there anymore. Well, he is. He's coming and beating on the door, but they're not letting him in. He's not in attendance. If they don't even know, the people don't even know. Surely they feel something. Surely they they feel like it's all happening right, but it's not the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the presence of the Lord. And how do we know? There are no miracles. I mean, there's no 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 uh, teaching on repentance, obviously, no teaching about the blood, no addressing uh, the awareness of the of the church situation. And Jesus doesn't even need to go in there. He tells them to repent. And I know that that's not a subject that we're likely to hear uh, in church these days. We don't hear a lot about repentance. So now we're going to think a minute about the United States. And we've said this before. Israel is a nation chosen by God. And in its history, she was protected and blessed by his hand as long as they followed and obeyed his word and their covenant. They had supernatural provision and supernatural protection the whole time. Now let's think about the founding of America. We're going to get to some scripture here tonight in a, in a few minutes. But when when John Winthrop, you, you, he, was the, he was the leader of the settlers at Plymouth in Massachusetts. It, it, George Washington is considered the father of our nation, but John Winthrop would be considered the grandfather of our nation. When they were getting off the boat and they were, they were making this settlement in Plymouth, let me read you some of the things he said. He said, for we must consider that we shall be as a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Now, this guy, he didn't even know what he was doing, I don't think, but he was prophesying about America. He was prophesying about the soil that he was now standing on. He said this land, this country, this, this place would be an example to all the world of the blessing of the Lord upon a people who will follow God and choose him and his ways. He said, we're committed to being a light to the world. Then he said, thus stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into covenant with him for this work. Here John Winthrop was making a covenant on our behalf, making a covenant of the United States with God, even though it wasn't the United States at all, there wasn't a state to have, but he's making a covenant. I mean, he's saying, if we will keep 
his ways and we will walk in his ways, we will have the blessing and protection of heaven on our land. Then he went on to say, The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people, and we will command his and, and will command his blessing upon us in all our ways, so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies. This is pretty powerful stuff. I mean, this guy was speaking to the future because all of that happened in America. It's our covenant with God. We chose him and we made a covenant with him. But that wasn't the end of it. He said, but if our hearts shall turn away so that we shall not obey, but shall be seduced and worship other gods, our pleasure and prophets and serve them so that we deal falsely with our God in this work, we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. And again, we shall surely perish. He's prophesying. He's basically saying something very similar to what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple. He's talking about the blessing of God being on a people who follow God, people who are in covenant with God. I'm telling you, this nation made covenant with God. In the very beginning, I mean, I can, there are several others that I could read from. I mean, Henry Hudson made one of the most profound declarations of faith when he discovered the Manhattan Island and got off the boat. I mean, think, think about what happened to Israel. They stepped aside from their covenant. They worshiped other gods. They ignored the God of creation and the blessing and protection of God was removed. Not all at once and not without ample warning. But it was removed, and destruction eventually came to them. We're going to get to good news, hopefully, in just a minute. Let me ask a question, though. Can a nation that has a covenant with God, that draws his supernatural blessing of abundance and protection, and then withdraw from him, can it continue to expect to be the example of the world and receive this supernatural blessing and protection? The answer is no. The answer is no. America is what it is today, or what it what it had, what it what it was at one point, because of our covenant with God, because this nation looked to God. He was the reason we were we had being. He's the one who advanced us. He's the one who blessed us. He's the one who protected us. I mean, he's the one who did all of it. Second Chronicles chapter two verse seven. I mean, chapter seven verse nineteen says. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set up before you, and you shall go serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and will make it be a proverb and a byword among the nations. God's saying, if you, if you forsake me, my hand is lifted from you. Deuteronomy 28:15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that these curses will come upon thee and overtake thee. When a nation withdraws from God, it also withdraws God's hand of prosperity and God's hand of protection. I mean, we know that for decades this nation was number one 
in education, number one in influence, number one in the spreading of the gospel around the world. This nation, the hand of God was all over us. Blessing and curse are choices. It's a choice I make for me. It's a choice a nation makes. Think about this. I'll read you some words from George Washington. This is in his, in his inaugural address on April the 30th, 1789. You realize we made the declaration in 1776, but it was 1789, then the Constitution was in place. Then we elected our first Congress and elected our first president. There was no capital city of New York, of, of Washington, D.C. The capital city was New York City. So on this day, the nation, this day our nation basically came into existence. The House and the Senate was seated for the first time and was set forth in the Constitution, and now the first president of the United States is inaugurated, and this is what he said. He said, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. That is a true statement. I mean, we, we of all people should be acknowledging him. Every step by which we have come, which we have, by, by which they have advanced to the to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. It would have been peculiar and proper, and proper to admit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides over the councils of nations, who and whose providential aids can supply every defect, and his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards, that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself hath ordained. George Washington, the father of our nation, says it's because of God and we cannot expect his blessing if we disregard him, if we get away from him. Just prior to his inauguration, this is amazing, just prior to his inauguration, they rang the bells of, of churches all over the city at 9 a.m., and they ask all citizens to go to church and seek God for the new president, for the new nation, for the new Congress. I mean, all over, people went and prayed. Immediately following the inauguration, the president of the United States, the entire House of Representatives, the entire U.S. Senate marched to St. Paul's Chapel, which today is on the edge of ground zero in New York City. They entered into the chapel, they got on their knees, they bowed in prayer to consecrate this new nation's future to the hand of God. Wouldn't that be awesome today? If they just came and did that. This is who we are. This is our covenant. We have a covenant with God because we as a nation chose God. We chose him. I mean, as I said, Henry Hudson had a similar statement. Ronald Reagan in his inaugurational speech, I mean, the man dedicated this country to God and made covenant with this country to God. So again, I ask, can we expect, we who've been blessed and protected by God, expect to continue if we, like Israel, dismiss him from who and what we are? The answer is no. We need God in America again. We need God. And you and I are agents of the change that we can, t that we can return to God. Think about this. After 9-11, all the leaders of our nation, beginning with the president, the speaker of the house, the president of the senate, um, others, 
all the way through Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama, all said after 9-11, we will rebuild. The emphasis is on we will rebuild. Not one of them acknowledged God. Not one of them acknowledged our need to repent and return to God. Not one of them. They said, we will build a tower. Does that remind you of a verse of scripture? The Tower of Babel, they said, we will build a tower. We will build a tower. The first president to ever say anything negative about the tower was Donald Trump. And he said, it is a mess. We will build a tower. We're going to do this ourselves. Never acknowledging God. Oh yeah, people flocked to church after 9-11 for about a month or so. I mean, they, they came and they came and prayed because they were scared. And they were afraid. But when they realized it all was returning to normal and it was so many miles away, they forgot about God. Went back to the murder of the innocent, the unborn. Went back to promote ungodly lifestyles in marriage. Went back to calling good evil and evil good. And we know that over the next 20 years since that's happened, it's gotten worse and worse. In addition, our country, our, our leaders have lost their affection for Israel. And have, have many have placed us in adversarial condition to it. I mean, that's not a nation whose heart is after God. We need God in America. Again, over this past year, I mean, we've suffered this pandemic that's gone on. It's at least been a contributing factor to over a half a million deaths in our country. And here's what makes me mad. It's affected people our age more than anyone else. It's, it's a curse, not a blessing. God is good, believe me. And God heals and delivers us. This is not from God. What makes me even more angry is it was released by a foreign government that has never owned up to its mistake or its purposeful release of it and has never paid a price for it. Oh yeah, payday is not every Friday though. There is a payday and it comes. But these people released it. It's, it, it they released it. And what do we say? We will find a cure. We will find a cure. No acknowledgement of God. No acknowledgement and no acknowledgement of our need to repent and return to Him. None. Except in some churches and some preachers. We need God. America, in particular the church in America, needs to repent and return to God. Repent and return to God. That's why I read that verse. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts, let them return unto the Lord. And here's the good news. And he will have mercy upon them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's a matter of returning to him. It's a matter of returning our hearts to him. He will have mercy. He will abundantly pardon as we return to him. And in all of that, where's the church been? For the most part, the church has been silent. 
Not totally, and there are, there are many great churches that are, that are really preaching some great things. But the emphasis since the 1990s has been on church growth. That's been the emphasis. It's taking, take, growing a church, having church growth has taken the place of teaching the truth of the Word of God. Churches are more concerned with the numbers, more concerned with the dollars, more concerned with growth. In the 90s, I know y'all weren't pastors in the 90s, but I was. And I mean, it's amazing. Charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled preachers were, were overwhelmed with all of these, these uh, brochures about come to our seminar and we'll teach you how to grow a church. Mm-hmm. Because they said, you know, we can teach you how to draw the crowds. We can teach you how to make it work. We can teach all of that to you. And then big churches started having seminars once a year where they invited pastors to come. And they said, if you will just do it like us, you can have a big church too. And it was all about growing a big church. Understandably, pastors were, 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 were enamored by the thought of a big church because of money and influence and all those things. But also because they thought they, thought they could they could reach more people if they had more of the money and they had more of the people. They left teaching the word and they sought instead to build little kingdoms of their own churches. Many became what are, what are known as celebrity pastors in multiple campuses all over the country. And, you know, and they swallowed, here's the sad part, they swallowed up many small churches with the promise that if you join our group, we can help you be a big church too. And you don't have to have any more financial problems. There was the loss of many of those churches, still going on today, and the loss of the autonomy of the local church because of the infiltration of the big one. Technology has repa- replaced theology. It's the show, and, and it's what people want to hear, and it's become the norm for the church service. It's, I mean, worship has become a Christian rock concert for, for the most part. It's just changed. Worst of all, the people have developed this insatiable appetite for shallow entertainment-oriented church. I mean, that's just what they want. The word, the supernatural power of the spirit was sacrificed for the palatable taste of church growth because we just don't want to offend anybody because they might not come and hear what we have to say. Christians now, feel entitled, and expect God to do for them apart from their own submission to his kingdom. And that's what's happening. We've seen that happen in the church. I mean, people are just entitled. You can go to churches and be moved by the sounds and be moved by the lights and be moved by all the things, but then there is no power of the Spirit. I've been amazed at at, at people wanting prayer for God to deliver them from their financial situation and they need a financial miracle and you say, do you tithe? And they've never even heard about it. <laughs> or if they have, they thought, well, well, no. I need God to give me some money before I can tithe. They've never figured out that it's about God and his kingdom. Christians today, for the most part, are unarmed with regard to the fight of faith. I mean, they're... I talked to a young man one day, and he just said, we were talking about something, and he said, he said, no, what you don't realize is people my age, we don't want a bunch of scriptures. We just want to know how to get along with our wife. And I'm like, dude, 
You've got to have the scriptures for faith to rise in your heart for you to get along with your wife the way you need to. But that, that's, that, that, that's permeating. And they, they, they just, that, that's just where they are. I mean, God's word has been replaced with all these felt needs. When we went to a church growth thing one time, we fell for it for about three months, and then my people got mad at me, which was, I'm glad. I'm glad they got mad at me. But then, but they told us, they said, you need to preach these sermons. They even gave us series of sermons for the first year. And you need to preach four months on, four weeks on this one. and four, Oh, the big one every year, the annual one, was, was the, the one on, on, on giving. And so once a year, we had, we, you know, they wanted you to give four sermons on, on being good stewards and giving because that way the church could have more money if you did it that way. I mean, they had the program and you were supposed to send them your numbers and they sent you the stuff. And all of a sudden, if the Holy Spirit wanted to move, he didn't get to come in and do that. We invited the people from, from the church to come on a Saturday and together we developed our, our um, vision and we developed our mission statement based on what they wanted to hear. For the first time in my that's when I realized that that wasn't it. Because we had to do what God told us to do. And I wasn't the only person God could speak through, but we were not. We were not going to have to abide by the loudest person in the room. And what they felt like should be our vision. And what they felt like should be our mission. Because it wasn't what God told us to do in the beginning. I mean, it, it just, but people, but they, but they became, they became that. They, it, it's about me. Church has become about me, and it's not focused on the kingdom and the king. It's not focused on submission. We've talked about the vast amount of biblical illiteracy that's prevalent among that's prevalent among modern Christian churches. People simply are not hearing the word and not being encouraged to hear the word, not being encouraged to read it. We must repent. And somebody like, what do we repent of? Here's what we can repent of. We need to repent of churches that grow without the Holy Spirit. I mean, churches that grow because, because the message of the word has been replaced by this business entertainment model. We need to repent. Church growth needs to be by the hand of God. It needs to be by the hand of the Lord. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, marketing, advertising, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We must rely once again on the Holy Spirit. We must rely on Him. I mean, the Bible says the Lord the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. People weren't drawn to any kind of a marketing campaign. They were drawn to the miracles. They were drawn to the move of God. They were drawn to the things that were happening in people's lives. They were drawn by God. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Not the program and not the music. The Bible says the Lord gives the increase. Listen, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit will draw men, whether that is the supernatural preaching of the word, the manifestations of the, gift of the gifts of the Spirit. Those things are what God put in the church. The Bible says he gives them to every, those manifestations, manifestations to every man to profit with all. 
I mean, the Bible says when we come together, everybody ought to have a tongue, a word, or something. There ought to be something going on in the lives of every one of us. It has to be done decently and in order. But we must, listen, church growth is not a matter of, of whether we can plan it or not. It's a matter of what the Lord will do. Azusa Street, the revival there, they had the worst marketing program ever, the worst building ever. I mean, they stood on buckets to preach, and they sat on buckets as their chairs, and the Holy Spirit came in the place, and the supernatural manifestation of God drew people from every quarter of the planet because God was present, and people came to see him. We must repent. We must repent of the misuse of, of grace in our generation and ignoring the call to holiness and righteousness. The Bible has never changed its mind about righteousness. Not once has it changed its mind about holiness. I'm not standing talking about standing in a pulpit and preaching against people and against things, but I'm talking about standing for what the Word of God says as the Holy Spirit leads. Ministers need to repent for failing to represent God to the people. And what they've allowed is the people to determine what is taught. It's consumer Christianity and entitlement at its height. And the people are determining what kind of self-centered message we want. Believers must repent of this self-centered me-first form of Christianity and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ on a daily basis. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Christianity, yes, there are all kinds of perks and benefits and all those things are there, but it comes as we submit to him, as we give ourselves away to him. We must repent of a bloodless and repentless altar call. We've got to stop this thing of, if you'll just get born again, Jesus will give you everything you want. I mean, it'll all work out if you just get saved. Well, it doesn't always work out. There has to be repentance. There has to be speaking of the blood. There has to be speaking of righteousness and what takes place in the life of a believer. When we become, we're made the righteousness of God. That doesn't give us license to do what we want to. It gives us license to do what righteousness does. And it takes, it takes a different teaching and mindset. I mean, we, 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 we must, we must. We must repent of a lack of boldness to speak truth as the scripture reveals. I read today of a preacher, famous preacher, who apologized mm -hmm. to the gay and lesbian community because he told them what the Bible said. Yeah. I agree, we can't weaponize the Bible, but I disagree that we must apologize for what God has said. Apologized. He might as well just hang it up because he's, he, you know, that's what he's going to do. You see, Ministers are afraid to take a stand because they don't want to have to face an ungodly culture that disagrees. Here's what the scripture says. You realize the Bible is full of if I, then he. You realize that? You realize there are promises throughout the scripture and that every one of them is conditional. If I confess Jesus as Lord, then he saves me. If I believe, then he manifests his word. It's, it, they're all conditional. Here's what the scripture says. God said in Second Chronicles, If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among thy people, 
One translation says, a virus. A virus among your people. Then he said, if my people. Here's the if I. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That is our only hope. Amen. If my people, God said, my people, we're among that people. I believe a fire blazes through us and, and from us that affects people all around us. I believe we're the right generation for it. I believe God has left us alive in this time for what, what's about to happen in the world, what's about to happen in our nation, for revival that's about to come through Christian believers who will take a stand, who will repent for our nation, repent for our own apathy, repent for our getting tired and trying to hand it over to somebody else so we don't have to do it. I believe God is ready to move in a way that we have not seen since we were teenagers. Except this time, it's not going to be love and flowers. It's going to be the line of the tribe of Judah. And the word of God is going to come out of our mouths. And it's going to be a two-edged sword. And it's going to do things in our society that only God can do. That's what God wants to happen. That is our hope. Jesus told Christians to repent five times in the two chapters, in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. Today, it's real popular to say there's no need to repent since we've already been forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. That is poppycock. The blood must be applied continually. The blood, it, I mean, it works from now on. But I'll tell you, a clean heart comes as we confess, as we believe, as we apply the blood of Jesus. Listen, the appropriation of forgiveness is based on the blood. It's a matter of faith. It must be applied as we live and walk by faith. Christians need to repent. Christians need to turn to God. I mean, man, the, the promises are not automatic until we meet the condition. And then they're automatic. Repent. The Greek word for repent, and I've talked about this before, is metanoia. Meta means change. Noia means mind. Okay, this word, it, it, it talks about a change of mind, or it's talking about a complete conversion. It has to do with a change of direction, a new course, completely altered behavior and view of life. It has to do with a radical and total change. Not a little change, it's a big change. In other words, it's a decision to completely change my thoughts, my behavior, my action. It's to entirely turn around the way I'm living, believing, and thinking. That's what repentance is. It's, it's, it's to change. It's, it's, it's a change. Notice the word noia is the word for mind. It's not the word for emotion. Repentance often has emotion that accompanies it, but it has nothing to do with emotion. Repentance is a decision. It's in the mind. We choose something different. I remember as a young person, and, and you know, I was raised North American heathen, white trash, but I had an opportunity to go to church camp every now and then. And when you go to a church camp, you know, you come home and you're just all fired up for Jesus. Everybody's fired up for Jesus for, well, two weeks at least. You're fired up for Jesus. And you repented, supposedly. But it was in your emotions. You repented. But you didn't make a decision. You didn't make a decision to change. One time, as, just before my senior year in high school, no, before my junior year in high school, I went to this church thing that was associated with a church camp, and 
I saw one of my friends there. He was from another church, and, and I saw him there. And I mean, he was on fire for Jesus like nobody had ever seen before. But in my mind, it's like, oh, he's been to church camp. Okay, I mean, you know, this will last for a couple of weeks. And this guy, he was a good guy, but he knew every dirty joke ever told, I think. He was the manager of the football team, the basketball team, the, 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 the track and all these sports, baseball. And so he could take the baseball jokes, dirty jokes, and tell them to the football guys. And just, he knew every dirty joke there was. But this kid, I mean, he saw me at this thing and he assumed that I was like him. I only went to this event because these two girls went. But we went to this thing and he was like, oh, Randy, praise God, hallelujah. I'm so excited to see you here. Oh, don't you just love Jesus? And he went away. Well, then when school started, he thought I was one of him. Well, I wasn't. I was one of those two-weekers, you know. I was high for, for two weeks on Jesus. But this kid, he got filled with the Holy Ghost, and he revolutionized my high school. I mean, he started Bible studies. He was leading teachers to the Lord. Judy Kern knows who, who he is. He was leading teachers to the Lord. He was leading kids to the Lord. He would have a Bible study in the home ec department once a week. I mean, the coaches fired him from being, a, from being the manager because he was too... Christian for them. And he was telling them that if they didn't get saved, they were going to hell. I mean, he was absolutely telling it. And to my knowledge, he's still serving God with a fervent heart because it was a decision that he made. I mean, he fell in love with Jesus head over heels because he made a decision. The church, you and I, we need to make a decision. Here's what the scripture says in 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come that judgment begin at the house of God. And if first begin in us, at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Repentance needs to begin in the church. That's where the standard needs to be raised. That's where, that's where we go from to reach the world, the nation that we live in. The church needs to repent. Individuals need to repent, but the church needs to repent. It begins at the house of God. The Bible says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We're not talking about judging ourselves and calling ourselves worthless and no good. We're talking about raising a standard of righteousness because we make a decision for God. We make a decision for his hand in this nation to return to the covenant we have with him for our nation. And let's call it what it is. This is one nation under God. This is one nation in covenant with God. And we return to him. And we repent because God is our God. And he is, it is one nation under God. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to change gears for just a minute here. This is what I meant to be teaching on last time and this time. Here's what I want to read. I want to read you a passage of scripture. This is like two different sermons, just so you'll know. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now here's my question. How many of you have heard that those verses many times outside of a funeral? That's when we hear them most of the time is at a funeral. We talk about the rapture. We talk about the dead in Christ being raised. But I want to talk about it a little bit here. We started talking last time, which was, I think, four weeks ago, about the end times. And so I went back to the beginning so we could talk about this verse of Scripture, because this is where I want to get to. 
I want to talk about the rapture of the church. I want to talk about the, the revelation of the Antichrist and, and, and what that looks like and, and what that means to us. I mean, we're going to eventually get back to this verse tonight. We'll see, but the Bible says this in, in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. This is God saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Do you know why there was a beginning? So God could get to the end. It's all about it's all about the end. He declared the end from the beginning because that's where God wants to get to. God wants to get to the end. The reason for the beginning is so God can get to his end. That's what end times is all about. It's about getting God what he wants. He will do his pleasure. If you read the verse after that, he says, I'll even send a bird to eat somebody if I have to. I'm going to get what I want. God will get it. He's going to have it. He will do his pleasure. His, his pleasure. That includes taking you and me to heaven with Jesus at the rapture of the church. That's our promise. That's what God wants to do. It's the rapture of the church. Last time we saw from the beginning that we, I read from the companion Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth became waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And so we talked about the earth was created, and the, and the word waste here or without form is the word tohu. The phrase is tohu va bohu. And it, 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 we talked about how that God overcame the chaos with his word. He spoke his word. He didn't create the world in chaos. The Bible says in Isaiah 45, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain, which is tohu. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There's none else. God didn't create it in vain, but something happens here. And you know what it was. He created the earth. Something happened. They threw Satan, who was Lucifer at the time, threw him out of heaven, he came to earth, stuff got messed up, and God now is speaking light, speaking his word, bringing order to the chaos. I mean, Lucifer was Lucifer, now he's Satan. He had his sights set on the throne of God. Truly, he had his sights set on sitting at the right hand of God and being Jesus. That's what he wanted. He wanted that. That's what he wanted more than anything else. He was cast out of heaven. Now he was thrown to the earth, to this planet that God created for his man, who he knew he's going to live with him forever in eternity. And so God, when God threw him out, Lucifer is angry. The Bible says he's full of wrath. He hates man because man is getting everything that he wanted. Think about it. Man I mean, we have, we have been redeemed from the curse because Jesus was made a curse for us. We now have the blessing of Abraham. We have been redeemed from death. We have been redeemed from all of those things because of Jesus. Satan wanted all of that. He wanted the blessing, but in his hand it became a curse. He wanted all these things, but now he hates man. And he was kind of like the rest of the angels when they said, What is man that you're mindful of him? And don't you know it infuriated him when God got down and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became another speaking spirit just like God. And I mean, he was furious. And so Satan's desire has been to take this world. He wants dominion of the earth 
He, man gave it to him. Jesus bought it, got it back. And I mean, now through deception, he's doing everything that he can to stop man from receiving the blessing. He wants people to not get to go in the rapture. He wants Christians to miss out on the blessing while they're here. I mean, that's what this is all about. That's why there was a beginning so we can get to the end. God created this world for his man. Satan wants to steal it. And remember, when we talk about Satan, we're talking about a fallen angel. He is not God, never will be God. By the way, did you know he can't read your mind? It's your mind. He can't read your mind. He can read your actions, and he understands them. But he cannot read your mind. That's why we pray in tongues out loud. That's why we make our confession out loud, because we want to prophesy to the north, the east, the south, and the west. We want to make sure the word of God goes forth from us. He can't read our mind. He's a fallen angel. All right, so I'm going to begin tonight looking at the rapture of the church. And then after tonight and the next time or so, we, I want us to look at the rise of the Antichrist. What I want us to see, and I don't know where your theologies lie, I'm going to tell you where mine is. I want us to see tonight as we go, as we go, that the rapture of the church is an undeniable doctrine of Scripture. I mean, it, it, it's just there. The soon coming of Jesus that will supernaturally raise the dead to get together with those who are still alive. I mean, it is in the scripture. This is about Jesus coming and snatching his people out of harm's way. And quite honestly, we're going to find out in the nick of time. I mean, that's, that's what this is about. The times that we live in are so bizarre, to say the least. I mean, things are happening rapidly in succession. It's like the moment one ends, another begins. Can you just, I mean, I was thinking about this last week. I went to the hospital with COVID. I get out and hell freezes over. And the earth froze over. I mean, it was, it was, it was miserable. You know, I mean, one, I'm like, Lord, give us some time here, would you? One thing after another, after another, you can tell. There are, there are labor pains in the earth. Her time is almost up. Earthquakes, more earthquakes today than we've ever seen, ever. Success. We don't even read about them because all we read about is COVID. I mean, but they're everywhere. And they're happening with more and more severity, more and more regularity all the time. I mean, floods, hurricanes, typhoons, all those things are happening all over the world. I mean, the last days... In fact, I believe the last of the last days are here. Lawlessness is on the rise. Go to Portland, go to Seattle, go to Baltimore, go to Chicago. Parts of towns, those cities that the police won't even enter into. Lawlessness is on the rise. And I mean, it's getting worse every single day. That can only mean that that there's the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist. It's got to be right in front of us. But, this is where we're going to go, before his debut, another event will occur that's way more important, and it's the rapture of the church. That's what we, we're going to see in the scripture. And if you've ever wondered if there's one, by the time I get through, I hope you will never wonder it again. The rapture of the church. I mean, Paul talks about it in the New Testament. 
he writes about it in, in, in some of the epistles, including this letter to the Thessalonians. So here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to begin with verse 15. We're going to go through these verses over the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to break these verses down by words, and we're going to look at what the words actually say. Here's what it says in verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good verse, isn't it? We which are alive and remain. Sometimes we just look at the original language and we can, we can pick out some things. He says, he says, we which are alive and remain. The, word, the words are alive. The Greek word is hoizantes. And they describe the living ones, the vibrant ones. It refers to those that are not lifeless and dead. The living ones is what it's talking to. The word remain in the Greek, it means the remaining ones. It means the surviving ones. Those who are left indicating not many, those who are there. The word remain literally means a remnant, a remnant. And so here we find that. I mean, that kind of goes with what we'll read later in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, too, which states there will be a mass defection from the church, from the Christian faith, just before the return of Jesus. And we're going to look at that. And we're going to see what that means. Jesus said in Luke 8:18, he says, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith in the earth? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The word find is the Greek, Greek word kurisko. We get the word eureka from that word. It means to find or discover. It pictures someone making a discovery as a result of careful, careful observance. It's talking about when one makes a conclusive discovery, it points to a discovery that's made due to intense investigation, scientific study, or scholarly research. Jesus said, when he makes his return to gather his own, he will thoroughly investigate to find people of faith. The word faith here, when he says, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? The word, the word is not pistis, which is normally what you see, but it's two words together, en piston. And so it, it, it I'm sorry, ten piston. And, it is, and it, the, the word ten is a definite article. He says, will he find the faith on the earth? the faith on the earth. See, when he, when he comes together, he will do a search. Listen, he will, he, he, he'll carefully observe and investigate them. He may find people who attend church. They observe rituals. They do all kinds of things. But finding people who are avidly pursuing the faith appears like it's going to be a difficult search for him. He's going to have to look for them. There will be an apostasy in the church at the time of the rapture. And so there won't be and we're going to look at it. You don't have to take my word yet. You have to take it after maybe next time. We're going to see that there will be some that will still be spiritually vibrant and alive. But there is a remnant that's going to be left. Those that are alive and remain. The remnant which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. They're alive and remain unto. The word unto is the Greek word ice, which means right up to the very moment of the coming of Christ. The word coming is a technical expression. I love this word. The word is uh, parousia, which is a technical expression for the royal visit of a king or an emperor. It's the arrival of one who has the power to deal with the situation. When Jesus comes and we meet him in the air, he is the king. He is the emperor. He is coming, and that is the beginning of him putting everything 
in order. That's the beginning of everything coming under his dominion. I mean, when he comes, it will be a parousia. He's going to come with power. He's going to put everything that is chaotic back in order. Moreover, those who are alive at his coming will not prevent them which are asleep. That's pretty fun. I mean, it doesn't matter which side you're on here. To not prevent means will not proceed or go before. Those who are alive when Jesus comes for the rapture, they're not going first. The others are going first. I mean, then what you're asleep is, the Greek word has to do with to sleep. It means to sleep deeply, the sleep of death. We get the English word coma from this Greek word and it describes those who've died having faith in Christ. In God's eyes, they're simply taking a spiritual nap. That's not a bad thing. I mean, if you think about how busy we are, it's not bad to have, take a nap, right? And so they'll take a nap. So, so Jesus is going to come, and when he comes, he will take these people. I found a pretty good um, interpretation of this verse, so I'm going to read that to you. It says, For we declare to you by the word of the Lord, those who are physically alive, who have survived everything, I'm talking about the remaining remnant that will still be left around at the time of the coming of the Lord, that living and surviving remnant will not precede those who have already died. So we're going to know that when Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain, we will meet him in the air. And that's as far as I'm going to go tonight. We're going to pick up with the next verse next time. But uh, I'll tell you, the rapture of the church is imminent. I believe for a revival. I believe there will come a falling away and then there will be the rapture. And we're going to see it. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, tonight we thank you for America. We thank you, Lord, there is hope for our country. There's hope for us as a nation because there are people like those sitting in this room who are ready right now to take up arms in the Spirit and defend the Word of God. We understand we don't, you don't need our defense, but you need our cooperation. And Father, tonight we pray for and believe for this country to return to God. We thank you for the rapture of the church. We thank you, Jesus, you will never forget us, that you are coming again for us. We give you praise tonight. We give you honor in Jesus' name. Amen.